0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. BellaCatering.com.au is the place you can find them. They're one of Sydney's best catering companies. They've pivoted to home delivery of delicious food that you used to have to actually cater for huge events. Now they can deliver all this delicious food to your home catered events with your growing number of people that you're allowed to have in your home in the greater Sydney area. Go and seek out their staff. They're great people. Glenn and Maria are wonderful. We appreciate them for being a part of the show this entire time during this entire pandemic. So support them, bellacatering.com. Guys, thank you for listening to One Heat Minute Productions. We have a banger of a week. Again, great guests coming up, great shows coming up in our feed. The final episode of Increment Vice, the 45th episode, is this week. Do not miss it. Subscribe to One Heat Minute Productions. You can listen to it. It's been an amazing series with our host, Travis Woods. Get on that and subscribe, rate, review. We have a banger of a week. We've got great shows coming up. If you can support us, check in the link. But now, here's the show.
1: Uh, that we don't have time to get to on the air but there's something specific going on behind the scenes right now that we did feel we should tell you about so on monday of this week we received a from a source a collection of confidential documents related to the biden family we believe those documents are authentic they're real and they're damning at the time we received them our my executive producer justin wells and i were in los angeles preparing to interview tony Bobolinsky about the biden's business dealings in china ukraine and other countries So we texted a producer in New York and we asked him to send those documents to us in L.A., and he did that. So Monday afternoon of this week, he shipped those documents overnight to California with a large national carrier, a brand-name company that we've used, you've used countless times with never a single problem. But the Biden documents never arrived in Los Angeles. Tuesday morning, we received word from the shipping company that our package had been opened and the contents were missing. The documents had disappeared. Now, to its credit, the company took this very seriously and immediately began a search. They traced the envelope from the moment our producers dropped it off in Manhattan on Monday all the way to 3.44 a.m. yesterday morning. That's when an employee at a sorting facility in another state noticed that our package was open and empty. Apparently it had been opened. So the company's security team interviewed every one of its employees who touched the envelope we sent. They searched the plane and the trucks that carried it. They went through the office in New York where our producer dropped that package off. They combed the entire cavernous sorting facility. They used pictures of what we had sent so that searchers would know what to look for. They went far and beyond, but they found nothing. Those documents have vanished. As of tonight, the company has no idea and no working theory even about what happened to this trove of materials, documents that are directly relevant to the presidential campaign, just six days from now. We spoke to executives at that company a few hours ago. They seemed baffled and deeply bothered by this. And so are we.
0: Welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. It is minute 113. And with that lucky number, uh, it's the third appearance of my best friend. Uh, on the show. You- have you listened to the show yet? Can I introduce okay. you?
2: I just got so <laughs> excited because I didn't realize it was minute one hour and 13 or 113 or whatever you just said. And that's my lucky number. Well,
0: it's 113. She Thanks. is an acclaimed bestselling author, a journalist, a screenwriter, a, a culture writer, and also a soon to be acclaimed both locally and internationally acclaimed podcaster. She's the host of One Heat Minute Productions, Josie and the podcast. She's also the host of our brand new production, which is an audiobook, her audio book, It Came From the Deep, and the after show, It Came From the Deep Show, which I am blessed to co-host. It is my best bud, as I said, Maria Lewis. Welcome back to the President's Minutes.
2: Thank you so much for having me back. I've got to say... Um I, I'm just, I'm thrilled to be back. I love the show. Um, love to see it. Love to be here. And love to do this minute. Like it's such a meaty minute and I can't wait to just like dump some adultery tea in the newsroom,
0: baby. <laughs> Let's do it. But also what is absolutely crazy is I had you on for one of the first episodes of the show, episode three. Worst. And it was, <laughs> the worst. So, sorry. <laughs> Okay. Well, we'll just we'll just move on from there. But then the next time that you came on, I was looking it up in preparation for the show. And the next time that you actually came onto the show was the 32nd minute. And that was in April, the 21st of April when you were staying here in pre-Melbourne lockdowns. So you're back in Melbourne, of course. We recorded that way back when. This is almost like a circa Josie time. It is now pretty much 60 episodes of the show later and the year is not over yet it is it feels absolutely crazy that feels like a lifetime ago
2: the year has gone for 12 decades that is (laughs) a mathematical fact i think we all know it um that is literally right in the middle of josie time because i remember the dates of like those of what those episodes came out so we were like right on the third bonus episode and you know, I went, got to Sydney, got stuck in Sydney, lockdown. It lifted, got back to Melbourne and then I've been in Melbourne lockdown ever since. So wherever I go, doom follows. And um, (laughs) I'm just here to bring some truly unhinged energy to, to minute one, one, three, baby.
0: Yeah. Look, uh, I really wanted to get you on the show around the Sally Aitken minutes. I'm so glad we were able to make it happen because I love Sally Aitken. Penny Fuller is the actress's name. I love this sequence and it's, you know, really interesting because, Ultimately, especially in the 70s, like journalism is absolutely a boys club. It probably still is a bit of a boys club in this country, absolutely. And I love her for her world weariness and just there's something great. And I think that whether it's female journalists such as yourself, and maybe it's because I know so many female journalists and I've encountered so many on this show, there's a bit of an intuition that lady journalists in a space of all that masculine energy just have. And all it takes is a look and in the preceding minutes, Sally Aitken's look that she's throwing at both Bernstein and Woodward are just so loaded with wisdom and awesome. And then when we come to this scene, like I love that she's like, I have a clear conscience. I had a drink with a guy who was trying to flirt with me. I'm, I'm fine. I, I, I know who I am. And hearing this guy, who's in such a position of power in the White House, Ken Clawson in Nixon's administration, clamoring for her to like understand the ramifications of his actions, not hers, his actions. Um, it's it's really it's a terrific it's a terrific entire sequence. It's one of my favorites in the whole movie. But I love her so much because we've only seen her like kind of once or twice, like popping up around the movie until this point, and now we get this like this is her scene.
2: She's one of my favorite characters, which is such a weird thing to say in a movie that is so uh, laser focused on this holy trinity of like Woodward, Bernstein and Bradley and Bradley like kind of being the icing on the Woodward and Bernstein cake. But she in particular, I really love uh, because, you know, not a whole lot of women in this film, but just the way she's represented. And I think you just said world weariness or I like blacked out and just imagined that and projected it into the conversation. (laughs) But that is, that is right because (laughs) it's so weird. I was watching this and it reminded me of hmm, Borat too, (laughs) where Borat's daughter, who is posing as a 15, 16 year old right-wing journalist. She's demiking fucking trash bag Rudy Giuliani and he starts like you know prepping his junk, and um, Borat has to run in and be like, she's too old for you, she's too old for you, blah blah blah. It's obviously something that's been in the news cycle a lot currently, but it just like really, I don't, and it sounds so weird to make those two things connective tissue, but it's just like. Any female reporter, whether you're a fake 16 year old when you're actually a 23 year old in a like satirical, political, uh, (laughs) (laughs) fucking deep cut, we can't break comedy movie, or you're actually like in a fucking, you know, Washington newsroom in, you know, fucking 70s or whatever, um, you have been in that situation where men have preyed upon you or attempted to prey upon you it is just is such like there's obviously been a much bigger deal of it now there was a whole I don't want to say like the me too movement but sort of on the tail like the me too movement was sort of targeted at bigger figures if you will and then towards the tail end of it a bunch of media personalities started dropping and like you know we saw it with bombshell and that Mm. film and what it represented and so it was just this thing of like hey, this doesn't only happen, I feel like there was an incorrect um, assumption that this sort of only happened to young women, it only happened to like left-wing reporters. And it's like, no, 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 no. Men be praying and they stay praying. And it doesn't matter what side of that metaphorical aisle you're on or what your age is or like your physical breakdown, they are opportunistic. And if they see an opportunity, they will try and seize upon it. And so, with her in this scene, it would just really reminded me of all the times when you just be out there trying to do your job, like you said, in an extremely male-dominated environment. And I couldn't even imagine what it was like in her time. Like I was, you know, a beat reporter in the tail end of the like the late noughts, so it was a very different situation. And I guess views. And uh, but
1: it,
0: unfortunately, from all the Aussie journalists, a lot of them who we've known mutually who've been a part of the show, it's like, you know, what's weird a lot of Australian newsrooms kind of have the same gender and racial makeup as the newsroom in the Washington Post represented in this movie. So so it's even a still. deeper cut. Yeah, still, till and, to this day. And-,
2: and they are incredibly defensive about it as well. Like any suggestion that you shake up the makeup or that you even take a look at just on paper on the stats mm. is something that is reacted to with extreme like, you know, how dare you kind of vibes. Even in the ABC, SBS, oh. it feels a wee bit of a different story but there's uh, issues with representation across the board as we've seen with all those public letters to the SBS, to ABC, the places that have charters that are supposed to cater to diversity and representation. And there's like and seven white guys the on the
0: board. There's seven white guys on the board at SBS, our, our specialist broadcasters. Look, I just want to say though, you 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 triggered this thought in my mind which is you oh, know,
2: that's
0: what I'm here for. 70s is, you know, this is a liberated time. Both of the key newsroom lady characters that we've met so far, we met Lindsay Krause, who plays K. who's just getting divorced. Like she's she's broken up from a fiance. Mm-hmm. She's liberated. Oh, Sally, Sally, a- <laughs> Um she, Anyway, so we meet Sally Aitken too, who's happily single, both career women. And what is kind of cool is that in, in the context of, in the context of their newsrooms, they, they're not judged by their peers necessarily, but still their, 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 their relationships. And this is the other dimension that the guys have no concept of their other external relationships can be exploited and also utilize for the purposes of the story. And obviously with these guys, they are so laser focused on just following the money and getting this down. And like, um, you know, Ingu Kang, um, who's the Hollywood Reporter, a terrific love, TV critic, um, who who doesn't love this movie. It was one of the first times she ever saw it. She doesn't love this movie, but she said a point the other day, which I think is excellent. These guys making consolations out of random dots. And I think that they will make their consolation no matter what. And at, at this moment, they don't really, they don't understand the burden of what that does to Sally professionally, personally, nor did they really understand what they were doing to Kay. At least at the time that they were doing this with Kay Eddie, Woodward is at that moment where he says, no, we're not going to pressure you. And Kay still does the thing for them because she knows how helpful it will be for them. She makes that sacrifice. But we we come now almost like at least an hour later in this movie and there, there's none of that, there's none of that care or accommodation or sensitivity. It's like, did did he tell you that to go to bed with you? Like, and it's just a completely different dynamic. And now in this moment, we see her having to deal with the fallout. And it's just such a, I don't know, I, I love the whole energy of this scene, but I also love the massive questions that it puts on just the burden of being a, a woman journalist, because you are exercising your tools to get the sources that you need, but also you're going to constantly be attempted to be exploited in some way.
2: A hundred percent. And that is the key point as well. Like, yes, newsroom environment, but this is a source. This is somebody that she has to, If she's doing her job, right. Which I'd argue that she is to a degree. She has to cultivate this source. Mm. She has to nurture the source. Like you don't just get somebody giving you information off the fly. It might happen once, like just randomly or whatever, but the best sources I ever had, uh, including sources that I still have now, even though I don't write on the beat in the same way that I used to, I still like I got tea on everyone, baby. I still get information (laughs) all the time and from better places because those sources are actually, you know, I'll use one example, but I will leave out names. So I met this person Can I say? (laughs) Can I
0: say? I love this.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, are like, yeah, we gonna guess? Like, no, no, no. We're, no. Gonna we're not in. gonna
0: guess. The in the most Washington Post, Woodward. Would, none of you, none of these names will go on the record. None of our sources will be revealed. But I do love live tea being spilled on this show. Please continue.
2: So this isn't tea per se. This is about the brewing process. And when I was transitioning out of being a police reporter into a film reporter. I used to have to cover every shitty red carpet Mm. you could fucking imagine. Like for every We have some fun
0: photos of me seeing you as a reporter on the red carpet while I was attending (laughs) a screening.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that seems accurate. Um, But so this is even before that though, this is going back to Gold Coast days. So I would do oftentimes do this in my free time. Um, I got like (laughs) politely um, accompanied uh, by the water police, shall we say. One time when I like paddled my surf ski out to the Southport Seaway where they were doing a close shoot for <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and you couldn't get there by foot. And I was like, who needs to get there by foot? I got a surf ski. I'll paddle that bitch out and nobody else can get there. And then I can like paddle away before anybody catches me. Uh, you know, the water police caught me, but it's not the point. Anyway, I put my camera down my bikini top so they were never going to reach down there and um, confiscate it. So it's all good. Got the scoot, It's not the point. But so as I would be covering these red carpets, there's a person who I used to see there all the time. And um, they would be part of what I would call like the fan throng, who you see a lot. They'll show up to, in Sydney, it's very like commercialized. Yes. <laughs> the fan throng is commercialized. It's people who have a specific racket where they'll show up with like 10 DVDs, four posters or whatever to get people to sign them. And the off chance that they do and then you'll see those products up for sale online that night, right? Mm-hmm. That's how they make their money. That's how they do. And um, and celebrities can usually recognize that pretty quickly. But this person was in the fan throng, not for that. They were just genuinely like an absolutely frothy fan. And because I was covering so many red carpets, I used to see them all the time. So i just start chatting to them. And like, you gotta spend so much fucking time dicking around on the red carpet, waiting for someone to show up for fucking five, 10 minutes or whatever. And then I was also attending um, pop culture conventions to cover them. And I would see that person there and they would volunteer as a, a PA for the celebrities. And it was so interesting because it was like it's kind of a colliding of worlds. And so I said, hey, like, so good to see you. I didn't know you did this as well. And they're like, yeah, my dream is to um, is to be a production manager. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. That's so, like, that's dope. I love that for you. I didn't really have a full grasp of, What a production manager was because I came to the business from very far outside of a film family. So I didn't even realize that you could do anything on a film set except act until I was like, you know, 19, which sounds extremely dumb, but it's just like, you know, growing up in a very specific environment. So we were chatting about that. And um, they were saying, like, you know, volunteering as a P on these pop culture conventions for, you know, uh, film and TV and voice acting and gaming celebrities was a really great way to build up their CV and to get. kind of practical experience they need and I was like yeah totally and they're like oh what's the red cut next red carpet I'll see you at and I was like oh tomorrow when the war began he's like yeah cool okay blah 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 so off we go and then many years later and this would be let's say 12 13 years later that person is now a production manager on some of the biggest movies in the world and we developed an authentic friendship it was organic it was based on shared experience But also us having, being in like a similar realm where we were circling each other in terms of like red carpets, you know, pop culture conventions, whatever. And to this day, they are one of my best sources. Like I've broken worldwide exclusives because they've flicked me a DM about something they saw on a lot. You know, they've (laughs) sent me like a text or something. I actually, I broke a story about Ridley Scott, the world exclusive about Ridley Scott coming to Australia to film um, alien Covenant before it was called Alien Covenant it was just like untitled alien film then but I broke the world exclusive on that because he was in a fucking golf buggy and they were trying to like see my best see my best <laughs> of him like around like Fox Studios in Sydney and then also the the Village Roadshow Warner Studios on the Gold Coast and this friend had seen him in like a golf buggy for like a fleeting like two second moment it just is like someone had zipped past and they flicked me a text and they're like they just saw so Ridley Scott in the golf buggy on the fox lot I was like what okay are you sure it was him because it, it could be like unless he's hanging with the Wu-Tang Clan how do you know it's Ridley Scott could be any old guy <laughs> what did he, like-
1: a, did he have
0: did he have a sketch pad and was he with the Wu-Tang Clan they're my two questions if, he, if either of those are ticked it's possibly Ridley
2: you know what, this person too, I feel like they would have been in another life, they would have made a great reporter. They have incredible journalistic instincts, which is why they, I think, make for such a good source. But so they text me this, and I was like, oh, shut up. And I was like, okay, well, that's all I need. It's like, you just need one tiny little, like, I saw this person yes. here, and I trust them because they've always steered me right. In the past, even like on a tiny, granule piece of information, they have been on the money There's never been something like you have sources who will be like oh my god this this and this and you know that person's a wee bit of a sensationalist or like oh i going to need to check this with like six or seven people yeah. before i can verify look, it
0: look, but- and in, on a personal level we all have mates who yeah, tell you something and you're like oh i heard this from so and so and you're like that person mm-hmm. you're like mm, uh, uh, uh get a couple more sources and come back to me you know what I mean? Like, even in your personal Give life. Show me
2: your work. Show me your working. Let's, like, round <laughs> it out. Yeah, let's and round so it out. I was I was able to follow up the story from there because, it's, you know, it's Ridley Scott. It's, like, honestly, there's enough people in the film industry who know what's what. So you just start putting out the feelers. Hey, Ridley Scott's on the Fox set. Do you know, like, what the deal is? You don't say, is he? You say he is. Mm-hmm. And then they come back and they'll be like, oh, I don't know what he's here for. So you're like, fuck yeah. confirmed, he's there. Move on to the next person, to the next person from there. But those sources are rare. A source like that is incredibly rare. I maybe have like four to five of them um, that are like invaluable in that way. Uh, A lot of those kind of sources will maybe work blind items. We talk about blind items a lot. uh, You and I (laughs) off air. I forget that people don't listen to that (laughs) conversation. I was like, you know, like we talk about all the time. I was like, actually people don't know that. But blind items are, um, in the Daily Telegraph, the Sydney paper here that I used to work for, they had a column called Guess Who Don't Sue? And basically the whole purpose of a blind item is to like spill some tea, but like not use names, but maybe use a key few details that if you're in the know, you can work it out. But if you're not, you're like, oh, that's saucy or whatever. But blind items have become uh, especially in the age post gorka where they don't exist anymore because Gorka would just fucking publish anything. They were just wild. They're like, yeah, we fucking put it in. Oh, <laughs> it's like, inaccurate. Oh, we'll take it down in maybe like a month or whatever. And, and to the point <laughs> where they got sued until oblivion and no longer exists. But um, those blind I- blind items help people negotiate contracts. They help people navigate their way through different studios in the streaming age. They help people decide what kind of agent they want to work with, what kind of representation they want or maybe don't want. They are extremely useful. I find them extremely useful from like a work perspective. If I'm like, you know, trying to suss out a team or something or like just get a general vibe for or a feel for for it. And oftentimes they will be like the canary in the coal mine. Usually a blind item is the start of 10 more stories about Ooh. that specific thing.
0: I was just going to so, say for folks, it's a blind item is is a damn crack in my experience. It's like, you just see this little, That's like.
2: That's a great analogy. Like, and, and, a great it's analogy. just like, pss, you
0: just start seeing water. like this little, this little spout of water coming and you're like, oh shit. Like, and you see it it's online. All, hard- you see. <laughs> I
2: knew you'd like
0: that one. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. That so, that was for you, Blake. <laughs> let's, let's save it for the group chat, will you? Um, but uh so you see it a lot on Twitter, and 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 it's actually not as sensitively worded um online or on Instagram or Scoop or something like that. It's like. Hearing this, or hearing something, or hearing news, and like usually it's very much uh, sort of clickbaity, spooky. And there's a few uh, online journalists, especially around some of the big Disney properties and and uh, and Marvel properties. There's usually like, oh, we're hearing X, and then that is usually the first story of the day in the morning. And then by the mm-hmm. evening, there is a fully fledged story that is bouncing around and doing the rounds. Like that's that's and- what it is. But but it definitely in the newspaper realm, obviously much more scrutiny on. Uh, the libel laws, especially in Australia, like libel suits and getting rid of names and making sure that you're not actually, even though it's a almost verifiable story, it's kind of one of those stories that Bradley would say, no, get two more sources on it. We're not publishing it.
2: I mean, you can literally have several women on the record testifying in a court case saying that this person molested me and preyed upon me. It's still not fucking good enough to get a (laughs) conviction in this country. But hey, that's just like out there on the books. you can look that up. Google that in your own time. You'll know who I'm talking about. I don't want to get defamed for things that are factually true. But what's really interesting in the modern age is because of that, that thing you said about libel and suing and stuff and... Newspapers just being just being less of them. They're just being less physical print media than there ever was. Blind items have shifted over to Instagram, and they also break down into specific categories. There are political blind items, which is mm. like the Woodward and Bernstein way. Like if they had, well, I mean, <laughs> Woodward still fucking wreaking all kinds of havoc, you know. But <laughs> I was like, if he had Instagram, I was like, I bet you he does have Instagram. Like he's all up in people's. He's got shit, Twitter, but he, but he
0: doesn't tweet a lot, just F fire.
2: No, but he would for sure have a Finster, like Ben Affleck does. Like <laughs> <laughs> he would definitely have one. Um, because there are full on Instagram accounts and Instagram personalities or whatever dedicated to blinds and leaking like little bits of information or whatever and if you have a few of the puzzle pieces you can start putting it together or it puts you on the scent or whatever there's an Instagram account uh called uh Deux Moi? Moi I think I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I'm not French but I'm pretty sure neither are they <laughs> but it's D-E-U-X Moi and it is like maybe it's a private account but it has Many thousands of followers. I'm, of course, one of them because I'm like, tell me shit. And um, they are very clear about this is unverified information. People submit them, we don't verify this, and they'll black out names and stuff. But it has broken so many stories in the past 12 years through this Instagram account, which is literally an Instagram account of blinds. There's also ones for, you mentioned, like the comic book world or whatever blind accounts and like those leaks and those sources they're on instagram now and that's fucking fascinating but back in you know all the president's men day it's like there was no instagram (laughs) that you could lurk on you had to cultivate and have drinks with that creepy person or go to dinner with that person or feel uncomfortable with that person many 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 times So that you could build up a relationship where you knew their information was good. You knew they were good for it. Whatever they're telling you either needs to be verified by one source or 10, but also said that they would feel comfortable telling you that information, which is key. They need to feel like they can start telling you stuff. And you have to keep in mind that everybody who's telling you stuff, it has an agenda. It's very rare that they're ever telling you something just for the sake of telling it, although those sources are amazing. There's people who just like can't keep shit in and just like, oh, fucking yes. Well, but I, feel, they're I telling feel like- you things Because they have an agenda they're trying to push and you have to be conscious of that as well.
0: Well, I feel like right now, the agenda that Ken Clawson is pushing, maybe some might even say that he wants Sally Aitken to see his blind item or um, oh, as we might say, hey. or, the, or the busting of his dam. Um, but we're going to watch it right now. Because you took it there, Maria Lewis. I didn't. I'm just following on from your joke. We're going to watch the 113th minute right now, which is Ken Clawson, um, who's only a voice actor. And unfortunately, he's not even credited in the IMDb of that. There are so many, like, again, from a technical perspective, the storytelling in this film is just so magnificent because you can visualize these characters so vividly and you actually never see them. It's such a wonderful choice. That's
2: um very Richard Jenkins in spotlight when yes. he's the voice of the guy who does the, the stats big, on the priests.
0: Big RJE. Um uh so let's let's dive into no, that now. that's what anybody
2: wants. <laughs>
0: <but> okay. <laughs> let's dive into uh let's dive into this minute, the 113th, if you're watching it at home. That's one hour and fifty-two minutes on the dial. Maria and I are gonna watch it right now together. You guys are gonna listen along and then we're gonna come back and talk about it.
1: Apartment. Well, Jesus Christ, you just shot me down. If that appears in the papers that I'm over at your house having it. Well, do you know what that does? Well, I don't see why. You don't. You don't. Well, there's nothing bad about it. Well, there sure is. This is. Just incredible. Well, I have a clear conscience. Sally, I have a wife and a family and a dog and a cat. She said that he was in her house having a drinks. Let, I don't care where it happened. What happened is what counts. Well, we asked him about it. He said he forgot the entire incident. Yeah.
0: Ken Clausen on the line.
1: Ken Clausen on the line. Jesus. Ken! What's up, kid? Ben, now look, this whole thing that's going on over there, Ben, I want you to know that I never claimed authorship of the... Never wrote authorship. the le- Ken!
2: Ken, Bradley's shit eating grin as he answers the phone says, Ken leans back on his desk, puts his legs up, and literally looks at the boys like, fucking strap yourselves in, guys. This is gonna be, this is gonna be interesting. We're in for some good shit. It's like he's watching Real Housewives of New York or something. Oh. Like, he's for real, just like, this is gonna be so god damn good Jason Robards' performance like as I think I've said on the previous two episodes uh that I've been on where I've just been like A-S-S! it is my favorite performance in this movie um he's just oh it's just so good there's just that bit where he leans back and he's just like "Yeah," Oh because you, eh. yes. you know that he's calling you that quickly after having just spoken to her and having spoken to the boys like it's there's an issue there. It's either true or there's a kernel of truth and the kernel of truth is just as valuable. You've got, you've got it. You've got the whiff of it. If that makes sense.
0: Before we deep dive onto the specific of the Bradley moments, cause I think there's so much to talk about. I just want to go, go back to the actual phone call. Firstly, Sally Atkins mustard jacket and floral shirt combo with large collar is outstanding. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I could
2: see her working, walking around Brunswick in that outfit, to be honest, yeah. like yeah. extremely <laughs> pressy. <impressive.
0: laughs> yeah. Um, I, I love uh, corduroy pants from uh, Bob Redford, one of the only men who can uh, get away with wearing corduroy pants and making them look cool. But the best part of that minute for me, and it kept drawing my attention, is the cigarette ash and stains on Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein's tie was what was drawing my attention to this one. I was just like, this is such a funny thing because she's so put together, absolutely looks pristine. The boys look kind of like a little bit like a bit of a hot mess um, as, as they're probably working like, countless hours right now on their roster but i just love that whole like dynamic of it's so fastidious knowing the different characters in that moment just getting the look right of each of them how they're dressing how they're actually not even how they're dressing but how the clothes look on them how well they're put together are they stained are they crinkled do they actually look good are they caring about their appearance and i just love that seeing all three of those folk there it just it. I don't know. For me, that those little details are what make rewatchable movies the most rewatchable. It's like every single time you're like, oh my God, there's an ash stain on his tie. How fucking cool is that?
2: So fucking good. And such a nice like little detail. Like, you know, that's somebody this this is like one of my favorite things about movies and movie making is the Simple statistical odds of a movie being good are near impossible. (laughs) All of the things that have to go right for a movie to be just okay are insurmountable. It makes my brain boil. It's why I would (laughs) never, ever want to be a director. I just like, it just stresses me the fuck out. I'm like, I'll happily write your damn screenplay or produce whatever you need. But like, I get stressed out by that idea. Even like from a studio level, trying to sort of oversee that kind of situation where there's a thousand moving parts. But what I love about really good movies is when everybody is on their A game. And I don't just mean the actors, obviously we talk about the cinematography in this film and how good it is, the directing, blah, blah, blah. But the costuming department, somebody there, like whether it was a HOD or like some fucking person in props or whatever, like organising the mess on the desk and making sure that it was authentic and whatever and we they're comparing it to a photograph or whatever. But somebody sat there with his costume and added those stains by hand, added that detail, knowing full well that the likelihood of it being picked up is incremental. But, you know, this movie goes on to become a classic. It gets studied and salivated over for decades to come. And so... That detail does get picked up, but you have like that effort and that thought go into every film and most of them never get loved or beloved and people never see that detail. But you still have to give a shit and think about it and that is just like one of my favourite things. I was on this set of... This can, we, such
0: can, a- we sh- can we shout out his name before you get to your story? His name, the, he- the, the costume designer and head of department is a guy by the name of Bernie Pollock and I just want Bernie. to read out, go Bernie so I just want to read out some of the incredible costume he did so he's obviously a Redford guy he worked on Jeremiah Johnson which is the gif that keeps the gif GIF that keeps on giving on the internet of like Robert Redford on there like nodding his head basically he did The Candidate which is another excellent movie Um, he did The Sting which won Best Picture in 73 he did Three Days of the Condor which is another great one you know the spy thriller that immediately preceded presidents he did Presidents did Marathon Man he did one of my favorite movies of all time which has been mentioned on the show many times um he did sneakers he did tootsie i love dustin,
2: sneakers tootsie Sorry, with dustin hoffman
0: and but so he's he's definitely tootsie been around can go fuck itself. <laughs> but like there was a time in his career he worked like he was extremely prolific and then he sort of bounced back in but he's he's done a stack stack of movies um uh, along along his entire story career
2: yeah. And it's likely he's never the person who ashed that tie. It's probably someone who was working underneath him or it might've been him or it might've been something when they're just off camera and like the hair and makeup person's doing their final touch-ups and making sure they're not too oily. And he's like, oh, hang on one second, snatches his out of someone's mouth and like stamp, stamp, stamp. There you go. It could have been one of those beautiful things that happened in the moment, or it could have been something that They learned because Hoffman was, you know, stalking around Woodward for months trying to learn all his little ticks and little nuances and stuff like that. But the comparison I want to make is, um, and for clarity, I did say it was weird and it will get weird, uh, is Mortal Engines, which is based on a um, a very beloved trilogy of books that are kind of like steampunk dystopian, if you will. So... Peter Jackson's company make the film version, which I actually think is fucking dope. If you ever get a chance to haven't watch it. it, it feels incredibly um, of the time, if you will. It's kind of like cli-fi, climate fiction, um, very like. Cli-fi. I
0: haven't cli-fi. heard of cli-fi. That's
2: cool. Uh, you should get on the writer circuit, baby. They're like <laughs> jizzy about cli-fi at the moment. <laughs> um, anything that kind of like, you know, alludes to the fact that the world's ending um, from a climate point of view, people are mad for, but This book came out decades before that was a thing. And in the movie, which I think is, as I mentioned, very good, but it was a massive flop. The budget was like between 150, 180 mil, shot in Wellington. I was on the set there um, at the studios that Peter Jackson runs. And the absolute detail (laughs) that was put into the smallest things, there's a recreation of St. Paul's Cathedral and uh all of these cities in the film like tr- they're called traction cities mm. so london is a physical moving city and it crawls across the wasteland eating smaller cities and then they dismantle those cities and they go into the beast that is london and turn it into part of their city big recycling metaphor there anyway In St. Paul's Cathedral, they have um, relics as well from previous times. There's like minions in there as like a relic of (laughs) like minions. I mean, it's literally fucking animated property as like, oh, what is this relic of a previous time (laughs) or four times or whatever. But it's a recreation of this iconic landmark where every divot, every crease, everything is informed and beautiful and spent hours upon and just people absolutely busting their balls, whether it's set decorators or like prop dresses or you know the the art directors everybody making these physical spaces and not many people saw that movie and it was a movie that had so much money spent on it and then even seeing the movie it's like you never can fully grasp all of that detail and attention and thought until you've gone like full Blake Howard and dedicated a (laughs) minute-by-minute podcast to it so I just think this really a lot to be said for people who love and care about their jobs so much that they're willing to put everything into something that it's likely nobody will ever see or appreciate and that is like one of the things i love about movie making so much
0: yeah, I mean, with those behemoth productions, so many of them, you know, just from a pure and critical standpoint, uh, I, f- I focus so exclusively on the story that the craft of the film is often sort of underplayed or ignored. And, and when you have a look at it and also it's, uh, I personally, and I know that you're like this as well, when you see something that is exquisitely put together, in the modern context, because so many, so much of it is usually, you know, done with digital effects and things like that. That's what you savor. It's like, Oh my God, imagine being on that set. Imagine the feeling it like gives you a different texture. It, it adds to it in such texture, a way.
2: That's it. There's it's literally texture. And I think, um, I can't remember. if I spoke about this on the previous episodes, but there's this uh, production designer. I know, which I've always said, like, if I could go back and do it again, I'd be like, fuck journalism. Um, I would study to be <laughs> a production designer. That's something that like utilises all of my talents, like getting to work in a team, getting to be creative artistically, but also getting to just research the shit out of things and be professionally nosy. That's like all of my shit. But I know this person is a production designer who works um, specifically on Conjuring Universe films. She's done like, <sighs> she didn't do the first two, but she's done everyone since. Anyway. So she was working and I was talking to her about it on this uh, on Annabelle 3. Annabelle Comes Home. It's actually really fucking good um, for people who like, I won't watch the third in a thing. I'm like, okay, don't be like Halloween 3 Seasoned of the Witched about it. You
0: know what I mean? <laughs> it's
2: like real quality gems when you get to the third entry in a property. So I was talking to her as she Rocky was like... <laughs> Dark Knight Rises. Ah. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I was like, can somebody else bring the actual examples? Cause I'm just like (laughs) trying to push through this narrative, like you do the fact checking. Um, so I was talking to her, she was working on the set and she was like filling the cupboards in a recreation of the Warren's house and their house. She had physically recreated the wallpaper that they had in their real house, which wasn't something that could be manufactured anymore. So she'd gotten an old photo and then duplicated the pattern from the photo and then physically printed it out and pasted it onto the walls as the wallpaper. So it was the exact same wallpaper. And then she's filling the cupboards with like condiments and shit. And that stuff you're literally, you do not see. But she, her theory was like, well, it's building character and it's building a world that feels authentic and lived in for the performers. So when they have to have this conversation scene in the kitchen and she's opening the cupboards and grabbing stuff from it, you're opening that cupboard and it's empty. It's a, just a split second of reminding you that you're in a fake scenario, on a fake set, playing a fake character in a fake world. Yes. But if that cupboard's full and full with the, she even done the labels for exactly what they would have been during that period, like Campbell's soup, not 2020. It was like the label from the seventies. Very smart. That helps them stay in character it helps improve their performance like your job helps improve another facet and aspect of the production and that stuff is just like oh man people don't get credit for that it's not a kind of thing that people care about it's a thing people care about on set and you get appreciated for being really good and clever at your job and very like good at the micro and the macro which means you get hired on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing but that is just like I would never have thought of that. Like, no, I'm not uh, fucking professional production and, designer. But
0: you just wouldn't. And there's one little tidbit about to to take it back to a, a journalism film um, as a topic is Tom McCarthy, who is an American actor and 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 film director who directed Spotlight. He he and his team on Spotlight did some sort of probably the most comparable painstaking recreation um, of a newsroom since All the President's Men with Spotlight. And what they did, and this is the production designer, just like and team being so good they let real boston globe reporters on the set and the people went to their real desks like the desks that were theirs and changed how they were organized so that that so 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 like not only had they sort of taken photos and stuff but like the people who worked there at the time goes oh no i don't usually keep my pens here i move it here i don't do this here i do this here and sort of actually reshuffle things around and when you no one would ever know that. No one would ever know that that is the case. But there is then something, as you said, for every actor in this movie, for for people who are trying to embody this space. And like acting is a weird job. I think that like production design is so powerful for actors because it is inherently weird. You are making pretend, you've got to hit your marks, you've got to know your lines, you've got to be authentic in those moments. And like you said, that split second of opening a cupboard and there being nothing in there as you're pulling it out is is it something that will immediately take you out of the performance? And so for these folk, you, you know, that, you know, Sally, you know, the the people that are playing in all the president's men and in this scene, you know, Sally and, and obviously Bob and Carl, um, being Penny, Penny Fuller, obviously Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford in that scene, they're never taken out because that, Thriving newsroom is pumping. People are having phone conversations. Different people are wearing different stuff, moving in and out of the space. Phones are ringing. It's like they are in the Washington Post newsroom. They are there, and that, like, that's why people go. Oh, why does this movie feel so good? It's some. It's doing something different. It's like because it's doing it to the performers in the scene as well as us, the audience receiving it, and as well as you and I, the mad people who are now examining it minute by minute.
2: Can I, um, (laughs) just the thing you said about like people in the background and stuff like that, mad respect to that because I was, what this happened last year when I was living with you guys. I was working in a new, last year feels, oh my God, like so long ago. Anyway, um, I was working, (laughs) I was living with you guys. I was working in um, a newsroom and there was a film uh, crew that came in because they were shooting a scene that was in a newsroom. And unless you have like the president's menu spotlight money um it's too expensive and always just looks too inauthentic to recreate a newsroom with the exception of really those two and actually state of play state i of would play. say not the the british versions obviously very great but the when they have a lot of money and a lot of stakes for the film version it also too is very good especially Russell Crowe's crusty ass car and crusty ass desk I was like oh yeah I worked with that person um <laughs> they went on to win a walk leave. wow isn't that crazy um <laughs> but so I was working in this newsroom when this film crew came in to shoot a scene for a thing that had to be set in a newsroom and they had six or seven professional actors with them who were um supposed to be acting as journalists and so the crew sets up they everyone's like you know whose desks were in frame we just like move out of frame or whatever and keep doing our fucking work while the actors go in and work in our spots or whatever and so they shoot a few takes and i can tell something's going wrong you can just feel it like the energy's not right and the woman who was shooting it is actually she's an, i guess like another person you say is a source but like i know her just from like covering a lot of film sets in the industry and you know, she's one of the few women of color who works in this business. And she's just like legit one of the best sort of like second unit assistant directors, DOPs, whatever. Like she can do fucking six or seven different production roles. She's amazing. So she was the director that day and I can just like feel something's not right. She comes over to me and she's like, it's not working. And I was like, Oh, yeah. And so in between setups, like every time they were like, and cut, and then they would reset up to go again, she would just come over to me and talk shit and we would just like trade gossip about this person on set or that person like on this other thing that we worked on, Robert De Niro in one example. It's not important. Let's save that story for another time. Um, and she's like, it's just not working. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's because they're actors. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, like it's very hard to act like a journalist because there's no overt action. It's not something where you can be like, If you're an actor pretending to be a juggler, you can do, you have to do, yes, thank you.
0: You
2: do specific, overt, obvious movements. As a journalist, there's nothing obvious about it. And she was just like thinking about it, goes and does another few takes. And she's like, yeah, you know what it is? It's like, it's not populated enough either. So she got all of the actual journalists in the newsroom. She put them back and then put the the actors, the six, seven actors in the scene with them. And as they're like doing setups or sets down, like we're just fucking typing away and stuff. And the actors are all just like watching us and mimicking our motions. And then they did four more takes after that and they got it on that, like those next four takes, like every single one of them, they're like, it's gravy. And it was just by having that, having something there, like a visual reference point. But again, weaving in the truth with the untruth, like that balance and straddling of things that are made up and things that are that are real and lived in. and it's a very hard, unobvious thing to recreate. Like, even the little mannerisms and stuff in this scene, not just how Bradley leans back on the desk, but how the boys are kind of like clustered around her as she's on the phone.
1: Mm.
2: And just like her manner and stuff on the phone, it's not obvious. None of it is an obvious performance, but it's like so good. It's so authentic. And that is so hard those little details that you have to obsess over that nobody else gives a shit about. And it's like, I think that's why this is an enduring classic for one of those reasons, the performances being so good and so real.
0: The one last thing I want to talk about Sally Atkins performance, because she's obviously doing a, a lion's share of the talking. We talked about Bradley shit and grin, mm-hmm. but you notice when Sally is talking to her colleagues in other scenes, she's talk. she's a fast talker. She's a journalist. Like, so she talks yeah. quickly and she's doing it. There is something that I just wanted to point out in this scene because it was just, you know, one of the last things in my notes for the scene is she slows down so that there is almost dead air before she responds. Like the way that she's talking, it's very calculating and reassuring. And she just takes the hardened edge off like what you expect with an assertive journalist. She's taking it off because she's wanting this guy to keep talking. And she's like, what's wrong with coming to, what's wrong with having a drink? and so yeah that way i'm just interested in talking about that authentic interplay of like i'm and it just shows her ability to have that nuanced dialogue i'm going to continue having this conversation and it's just going to flow and you're going to tell me things and she's still a consummate professional and using all of her trade craft in that moment is just really really dynamite in this moment as well
2: so pace is like an old school journalism trick because if you're not interviewing somebody and it's just like you and your colleagues or whatever. And you see it with her and the guys and Bradley and Woodward and Bernstein. I feel
0: like my wife sees it with you and I, I feel like <laughs> Sam sees it with you and I. It's like, we're like, <laughs> stop.
2: stop. stop. Um, so you're speaking fast. Cause like time is money, baby. And you got a lot of information to get out and they might have the information that you need. So you're talking fast to tell them what you've got or vice versa and blah, blah, blah. And newsrooms are fast and everything's fast and blah, blah, blah. But That thing that you mentioned, dead air, is like an old school journalism trick because there is a natural human instinct. It's like a psychological thing that a majority of people, unless you're a high-functioning sociopath or psychopath, shout out to my ex, um, you have a tendency to feel dead air. People get uncomfortable with silence. And no, that's not everybody, but let's say like eight out of 10 people. So if you're trying to interview a source or get information from them that they mightn't be willing to give, you ask a pretty simple question, a pretty leading question, like she does, because she's fucking good at a job, and then you just leave it. They answer, and then you just leave it. And it's something that like you always know in theory, but... The place that I really sort of like, I don't want to say I mastered it because I don't know if I mastered anything, um, but except like messy behavior, um, the place that I feel like I really honed that particular trait was when I was working on the feed at SBS, because you'd be interviewing people on camera and it's not just that you want them to fill the dead air but you want those expressions when they're finished talking Mm. or the expression they have before they go on to say something else. Like people want to just keep talking. And sometimes when they will just keep talking to feel the silence because people can't stand dead air or silence, they say things they don't mean to say, or they say things in a way that they shouldn't have said it so that you can really truly read more into it. And that's where you get the juice. That's, that's, that's the good shit. And on the feed, it was like, once you've asked the question and once they've answered it, give it four seconds, like, and four seconds. Oh, that's nothing. But it's like one, two, three, four. Like that's actually a significant beat. And so sometimes that means great. You've got a clean edit point. You know, you've got a clean amount of air that you can just like cut and that works. And when we're putting it together in assembly, it'll be really nice. And then other times it's like, they're getting a really good facial expression Mm. or they end up, just keep talking about something because they're just like, oh, they expect me to say something else. It's a natural or, instinct. He was like, ah,
0: okay. Or, or our favorite, the moment in gone girl where Nick played by Ben Affleck, Ben Affleck to some does that moment where he, oh, ben, Affleck. <laughs> ben Affleck to some um, instinctively smiles. Oh. Like after saying the heartfelt thing, he does the weird dumb, like I don't know what to do with my face, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like I'm in front of cameras, what have I done for my entire life? It's that kind of weird, you know, emotionally broken part of Ben Affleck that David Fincher is exploiting um, so heartily in this movie. Uh, But it's, it's, uh, I think, I love that. I, I just love that instinct of like, so many people will punctuate what they've said with an expression that is sometimes drastically different to what they've said. So that dead air moment, obviously functionally it's nice and clean, but they can say something and it looks like it's really meaningful and thoughtful. And then their facial expression will tell you that it's a lie and it's, 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 it's it's magic. (laughs)
2: <laughs> the only time I've seen it not work <laughs> actually just quickly on the gone girl thing that beat um, and you credit Fincher for it and for sure like he's exploiting Ben Affleck's like public persona in a way that's very clever um, fuck his girl with the dragon tattoo though because it's fucking terrible and Great. really like it's, excellent it's, it's, it. it's It's actually shitting on the legacy of the person who that's wrote perfect. it and everything they believe in um, but in the book Gillian Flynn writes that scene so beautifully yeah, where she just it's, it's the data. moment it's where the he where he smiles and how it's like just the way she phrases it is just like leaning into his entire life of being this guy who is just handsome enough and just every day enough that he could just smile and go for his sort of like way through these situations that he is a manipulator not in the same way that Amy is, but definitely in a way that's complimentary and that they saw something in each other without really knowing it was there, which is very clever. But so the, <laughs> the only time I haven't seen the dead air trick work super well was on an interview on the feed with Jack Black that Mark Finnell did. And Mark Finnell is very good at the dead silence thing. Like he just will like the way he he'll just do a head tilt and someone will just be like, Oh, I guess I got to tell you about my dead dad or whatever. But <laughs> so Jack Black is doing an interview on the feed with Finnell. So I had to edit together and I'm like watching or what, we, what do you call is it? like the dailies, right? But it's not a daily because it's not a film set, but we're just like watching the raw footage Jack Black did the entire interview with his eyes closed. <laughs> his, it's online. You could look it up. His eyes closed and his head back. And I was just like, is he a genius? Because <laughs> like, you can't read what the other person is saying to emotionally manipulate you with their face into you talking about, what you want to talk about? And like, Fennel had done this bit where he had brought up his dead brother, and the way he had like transitioned into it was like really fucking good. It was really tactful, respectful. It was relevant to this discussion. But Jack Black's got his eyes closed <laughs> for the whole interview, so it's just like it was an incredible like block. If that makes sense, great it was flex. just like great, great block
0: <laughs> flex from Jack Black.
2: It was insane shit. I remember just being like, "What the fuck? This is insane!" But also like. Is he a genius?
0: <laughs> yes. The answer? Yes. He's a genius. Yes. Yes. Uh, look, Speaking of geniuses, you're a genius. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you for your um, support of everything that we're doing on One Minute Productions. Thank you for just being a part of our family, uh, and both on our recording family or our family. I love you very much. And I'm so uh, happy that you've been part of the show and been such a an avid supporter in front of uh, the recording microphones and behind the scenes with help uh, uh, sourcing some of our incredible guests. So thank you so much.
2: Can I just, yeah, and, like, I'm just going to, you just, like, fucking verbally joked me off, so I have to do it back. No, um, <laughs> but I am so proud.
0: I'm going to be like Jack Black and just lean back and close my eyes. Just
2: close your eyes. Close your eyes. It, oh, fuck, oh, that's so funny. I'm going to send flakes. you the link to that after it. It's so good. Well, i
0: looking um, at it.
2: <laughs> but he, um, he, you, with all the presidents, men especially, like, I know I've been very vocal about I'm not the biggest Michael Mann fan. I'm sure he's a lovely person. I just don't really love his movies and I, I definitely don't like Heat. But with All the President's Minute, I feel like you have really elevated the minute by minute structure, which you were like one of the pioneers of and stuff. But the range of guests that you've gotten has been so impressive and so eclectic and so complimentary to all aspects of not just journalism but filmmaking in particular. Like I, you know, we're mates, so I hear who you're having on and whatever. But sometimes I don't. And I just go to my podcast feed to listen to like the eighth episode you put out that week. And I'm like, oh my God, he got that person. Like it was just the guests have been so good and there's just so much value packed into like (laughs) over a hundred episodes. It's goddamn really great. And you should be so proud of yourself because it's just like, you know, there's a level and then you just have stepped it up another notch with this. I really enjoy listening to it every week and getting completely surprised and delighted by it. And that's like coming from somebody who has like a spoilers version of the show most times.
0: So <laughs> yeah. I'm-
2: it's like oh wow what a treat that that coming big
0: pivot big pivot well thank you so much and like I genuinely you know for everyone who's a fan of one heat minute productions and everything that we do of course one heat minute was our was our you know the, the inspiration baby. it was our baby it's the inspiration for everything that we're currently doing but I genuinely have been completely blown away and it wouldn't it wouldn't have been without one heat minute we wouldn't have been able to start as incredibly strong as we have because i think that people knew that our intention here is to speak passionately and to scrutinize great works of art or things that we really think add value to the cultural conversation and so so many of our incredible guests were you know were in, incentivized and inspired by our work that we did in on one heat minute to come on to all of our great shows to reach out and say you know come and be let us interview you as part of josie in the podcast come on to last 12 minutes the mohicans come on to all the president's minutes or and now you know putting up the bat signal for our future projects like like uh zodiac chronicle you know, I was intending, um, I was only intending for that Zodiac Chronicle series to be twelve episodes, but I think right now I can say pretty comfortably it's going to have to be twenty-four. They're going to have to be two-parters for every section because I've already got forty guests that want to do the show, and I don't know where I can fit them. So it's just one of those incredible things. And uh, look, yeah, it's it's been a blast. It's been a fun ride. So we're we're nearly at the end of it,
2: mate. The end is nigh. Nice.
0: The end is nigh. The end is not. So the, end is, the end is nigh. The end is not Bill Nye. But uh, thank you so much for uh, being a part of the show again.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: There she is. My bestie, Maria Lewis. If you want to follow her, it's at Movie Maz on Twitter. That's the best place to find all of her stuff. If you want to listen to her on One Heat Minute Productions, you just go back in this feed and find Josie and the podcast. It's in the One Heat Minute Productions feed and you can also search it separately as its own feed right now. Josie and the Podcasts, Maria is the host of that. There are six uh, full episodes of the show and then there's six bonus, so 12 in total. We also now have a new project for One Heat Minute Productions called It Came From The Deep, which is an audiobook of Maria's novel from her Supernatural Sisters series, It Came From The Deep, where each chapter is coming out every week. But we're also doing an audiobook after show where Maria and I and sometimes some guests host uh, an after show that break down the themes and the inspirations behind the book. So check that out. It Came From The Deep is available everywhere as well. Guys, thank you so much for listening to One Heat Minute Productions and all the President's Minutes. If you want to support us, one of the best ways you can, subscribe, rate, review the show. It really helps. uh, It helps get more people involved. We are on the downhill slope. We'll catch you on another episode very soon.